welcome to Pop Unlock. I'm Landry Yares. And I'm Natalie Dalziki. John Carpenter has had his fair share of hits and misses, but only one of his films makes our skin crawl with paranoia about whether or not those around us are still, in fact, human. Here to discuss Carpenter's 1982 sci-fi horror cult classic, The Thing, is senior fellow at the Cato Institute, Julian Sanchez. Hey, thanks for having me. And columnist for The New York Times, Jamel Bowie. Hello. Uh, Jamel, uh, I thought I would start a question off uh, posited at you since it's your first time on the show with us. Um, You wrote a rather succinct review of The Thing on Letterboxd. Uh, in its entirety, I thought I would read it for everyone so they understood. Uh, it reads, oh, hey, look, it's the most nightmarish thing I have ever <laughs> seen. <laughs> would you care to elaborate on sure, that? Sure, you even got my exact intonation. That's like more or less how I said it in my head. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so I had somehow never seen the thing before then. I thought I had, but I think I had memories of playing the Thing video game back from the early 2000s, if you remember that, sort of a survival horror game. Um, that was that was there were a bunch of those. It was an alien one, aliens one. It was it was a whole thing. Um, but I had never seen the movie, and so sort of apropos of nothing, at the beginning of this year, I decided I would watch every single John Carpenter film. And at this point, I've mostly done that. I have one that I have not finished, um, but I watched them all in kind of chronological order. And so I came to the Thing. And I just wasn't anticipating how horrifying the thing actually looked in all of its various forms and permutations. And especially, I think I, I think that thought came into my head specifically uh, during the blood testing scene where Palmer turns into his, you know, his head splits open and he turns into a monster who tries to eat windows. And at that moment, I was like, this is... This is genuinely nightmares. I hope to never see this again. Of course, I rewatched it last night, so that was you know not really the case. But um, the creature designs, and this is you know people have said this a million times, but the creature designs in that movie are just something else entirely. So um, that's that's what that review was sort of referring to. Yeah, I mean it's an interesting um, kind of contrast too, because in a sense, right, this is a sort of a slow burn psychological horror. I mean, it's not a slasher fic. The, the, the force of it is in this sort of tension about, um, okay, well, the blood is spoiled, but who had the keys? And they're trying to, just seeing they're trying to puzzle out who among them could be the thing and whether it's safe to be alone with someone else. Um, and that's where all the tension is. And I think, you know, it didn't do that well on, on first release. It wasn't reviewed that well. I mean, in part because, okay, you've got this slow burn simmering psychological horror, and then you've got this absolutely revolting uh you know body horror transformations um that 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 sort of punctuate that there's relatively few of those scenes uh but they're really memorable and i think maybe that that sort of was so overpowering and to a lot of people so repellent um that that it 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 almost sort of obscures that most of the horror in the movie is um is not about that i've always found it interesting that this movie is thought of as primarily a horror movie because to me it has so much in common with the paranoia thrillers of just a couple years earlier in the seventies. Like that to me is it's, it's more immediate lineage. Um, and you know, not for nothing, the thing from another world, the the first movie based off of this short story is very much of a, I think it comes out in 1953 and 1954, 
it is very much of a piece with sort of the Red Scare inspired anti-communist paranoia science fiction movies of the age. And I think that the thing, it's just in the DNA of the property. But then that really comes out, I think, in John Carpenter's rendering of the story. And when you place it next to something like the Parallax View, um, uh, Alan J. Pakula's film, which I think came out in 78 or 79, there's a lot of similarities just in that sense of ever-present dread of not knowing who you can trust um, and not really trusting even the very fabric of the society you've built. Well, it's interesting, Julian, that also that you brought up like this this difference between like a slasher horror film and like what Jamal was saying, like this kind of like psychological thriller horror um, because like I we uh, b- before this podcast, we covered Candyman, which is like couldn't be different uh, in terms of like a horror in the within the horror genre. And I was thinking the same thing that like the type of horror in both these movies is very different and very distinct, obviously made in different different time periods. But I think, too, um, what uh, this movie kind of situates itself. Um, Landry and I, right before this, were talking about how this, uh, this year was like crazy for movies. Like this, this, uh, the thing came out the same day as Blade Runner, and also ET came out like two or three weeks before it. Um, so it kind of situates itself very um, interestingly between like those types of films. Um, ET has aliens specifically, but um, I think it's interesting to look at it as like some people actually don't consider it a horror film. They more consider it like a psychological thriller with some like gory scenes, right? Or some like some jump scenes, but not necessarily horror. But I actually think it's scarier than a slasher film because it's more like I feel like it gets to more at human nature and like your understanding of like self and what is self than like slasher films do, but maybe that's just my personal preference on on what scares me or what's more um, nightmarish, so to speak. Yeah, I mean, you know, genre classifications are always, you know, sort of a a, a bit of a mugscape. I would, you know, I would call it a horror film. I think a, a movie where where dogs are consumed into a kind of multi headed snarling blob thing with flailing tentacles is um, just from that scene alone has already sort of established itself as, um, as horror. And, you know, a lot of, a lot of, of horror movies are to some extent right about the tension of when, uh, the killer is going to strike. But uh, yeah, I think this is doing a lot of more, more interesting, uh, stuff than that. I mean, you can make the same argument. as like, let's say a, a movie like cube, um, which has sort of horror elements, but doesn't quite, you know, track the, the, genre conventions, so it's sci-fi, and, you know, and, and these are, these are, are always sort of rough and ready characterizations that, um, you know, it's, it's not worth hanging a whole, a whole lot on. I do think it's interesting, actually, you mentioned the, the, that this was released pretty close to, uh, Steven Spiel, Spielberg's Alien, which, uh, it's not, it's not no, that would be a <laughs> <watch. No. laughs> uh, to, uh, to Steven, to Steven, to Steven Spielberg's E.T., um, which, of course, at the time was, massively more successful this was sort of a flop at the time um but i feel like now at least among sort of movie buffs et is kind of regarded as as schmaltzy and not very interesting and uh and the thing has has become a kind of cult classic yeah it's it's very much i feel like the sort of 
admiration for, you know, H.P. Lovecraft, who, you know, struggled during his day. And obviously a lot of the film is inspired by the sort of cosmic horror stories that he wrote about. Um, You can see similarities in the initial reaction to the odd unrecognizable but somewhat alluring nature of those stories that with time we grow to to recognize and and that's sort of reflected in the the you know first reactions to what the people at the base look at when they see the thing is you know they start to really after being initially scared by it trying to you know parse where the the line between who is you know the, between themselves and the monsters uh, in the face of these careless, eldritch, abomination-type creatures that are just, like, completely unlike anything that we've ever perceived before, um, which I is obviously a, a huge inspiration uh, to Carpenter's sort of spiritual trilogy of films that the thing started with this and then Prince of Darkness and uh, In the Mouth of Madness, which... It is in and of itself a play on At the Mountains of Madness, um, a, a story that he wrote. And the setting for this story, the setting for The Thing, of course, is based on the Campbell short story. But Campbell himself was probably inspired by um, At the Mountains of Madness. This is another story uh, by Lovecraft that is uh, set in the Antarctic and is essentially about an expedition discovering alien horrors frozen beneath the ice. And so I think for kind of horror fans now, uh, uh, you know, looking at this, you would very naturally think of that Lovecraft precedent. I'm curious if Jamel hasn't, having seen the other two in this sort of Lovecraftian trilogy probably more recently than, than I have, certainly. I, um, I actually have if, never if seen you, either of oh, them. Oh, well. uh, So I'd be very curious to hear uh, about the other two. No, I will. First of all, I would highly recommend both Prince of Darkness and In the Mouth of Madness. Of the two, I think Prince of Darkness is probably the stronger film. Um, even if it has the sillier concept, which is, you know, what if Satan were goo, um, <laughs> but I really love it. And in the mouth of madness is a little more conventional. Um, and I don't not don't think as interesting, but, uh, uh, Sam Neill who stars and it gives a really incredible performance, but so, you know, all three movies do deal with this idea of more or less uncomprehensible evil. Um, the other two movies, it's more explicitly evil. I think one of the interesting things about The Thing is that obviously for the human characters, The Thing is a terrifying monster, but The Thing itself is just an organism. It's just trying to do its own thing, so to speak. <laughs> and it is difficult to attribute moral motivation to it. It is not malicious. It simply wants to assimilate because that is its biological drive. And when I think about how unpopular this movie was. And it's worth, I think, if you can find reviews of this movie, it's worth reading them because people, it wasn't just that this flopped, it's that people hated it. They thought it was really, really not, um, they thought it was trash. And you know, part of me wonders if that reaction to the film reflects, it's a kind of horror, it's a kind of take that is at that was at odds with, I think, where American culture was at the time. The idea that there are these, you know, Fundament, not just fundamentally foreign, but incomprehensible um, entities out there for which we cannot actually control, right? So much of the movie is the characters and specifically the science, you know, Wilfred Brimley's character um, 
be driven being driven mad by the recognition that there's no way to control this thing other than um, everyone killing themselves and isolating themselves. And this, a movie where the villain is on some level unknowable and uncontrollable and um, cannot be stopped except through, you know, the ultimate self-sacrifice. And even then, maybe not even then probably just rubs sort of morning in America, you know, America wrong in terms of the kind of message it's being, it's, it's put out when, when the country has this sort of reinvigorated sense of optimism and power, a movie, um, you know, who, who, you know, all the, all the main characters are American to, they're an American base, a movie that essentially says that your, your sense of power is an illusion. And there are things far older and far more powerful than really you can even imagine. And one of my favorite shots in the movie is the, when they're exploring the crashed craft in the ice flow. And it's a cool shot because it's very obviously, um, this combination of a constructed set in the location, but then a matte painting and sort of sort of the way it's shot creates this both they can shoot the the actors and climbing down and interacting with physical objects, but then the way it's shot um, because of the matte painting creates this sense of immense and otherworldly scale uh, that I, it makes sense to me that people would just find that really off putting. Um, in the same way that I think, I think there are a lot of films that hit basically at the wrong cultural moment, and people find that putting. Whereas I think if this exact movie came out today, right, and let's just like let's say, let's imagine that the effects, which hold up very well, you know, the effects are updated for you know twenty twenty one. If this exact movie came out today, I think people would lose their minds. They'd absolutely love it because I think sort of the national mood is more. Um, is more tuned to the kind of, you know, fear and paranoia this is trying to communicate. You brought up watching this film today versus the context that it was in when it was originally released in 1982, specifically because of another scene that you brought up at the beginning, Jamel, which is the blood testing scene. Um, And I, I hadn't thought about this while I was watching it until that scene when I believe it's Windows is the first person uh, that they test and he he cuts his thumb uh, with the the bloody knife and, you know, puts it into the cultured dish. And then they all use this same knife, I believe, to cut their, you know, their skin and, you know, produce something for a test. And this movie came out in 1982. The AIDS epidemic was just beginning to really, really ramp up. I think a week before this was released, there was the first study that suggested with any type of conclusivity that there was probably some sort of sexually transmissive virus that was causing the AIDS epidemic. But it was still very, very unclear at this point what the transmission method was, you know, it was, was it blood? Was it saliva? Could you get it from a handshake? And we know, of course, over you know time, we learned so much about this, and that a lot of these fears were you know really overblown, and people were being very paranoid. But it is really interesting the the way that this scene in particular is is placed, and looking at the film today in a, a sort of context of a fear of contagion of COVID, uh, I, I don't initially think of the movie about something acting in a virus-like fashion, but it, it really does sort of function in, in, in and 
getting from that body horror genre to something much more like a virus. So does that make you view what the film is saying any differently than what you might have originally? I mean, for me, not not so much because I think I mean when I when I try to think about big picture um, ideas this movie has I think and I don't think this is a stretch but also um, you know the the characters themselves aren't you know making you know ideological statements really at any point but yeah the movie this isolated compound um, constructed society. And the movie is sort of asking, you know, how strong are the are the are the bounds of that society? You know, when something like this emerges, can you know we act cooperatively to deal with it? Because it, I think it's very clear. On my second watch, this was clear that had everyone just sort of taken a breath and worked constructively together, they might have been able to contain the thing um, before it it really took over. But the immediate paranoia and fear, you know, dissolves those bonds, whatever they were between the men um, and renders them easy pickings for the thing. And that, I think that kind of perspective, that, that message, whatever you want to call it can apply to so many different situations, right. Can apply to so many different occurrences, um, not just pandemics, but, you know, as I said, the, the first movie comes out sort of in the midst of the red scare and, um, that I think you know, it applies applies there as well. There's that great bit of, of sort of foreshadowing where they go and visit the the ruined camp of the Norwegians, um, from which the that originally sort of unearthed the thing, and they find this the place sort of charred and gutted. And it is at least in retrospect, I think, fairly clear that what's happened here is not just that the thing has done all this, but that they have that they've turned on each other, that they've killed each other, and that a lot of these charred corpses. Um, were probably not things at all. They were humans who got uh, who got torched as they um, as they became paranoid and and, and killed each other. Um, in in reference to what Jamel said earlier about the sort of the the utter alienness and unknowability of the thing's motives, I think one of the um, the really interesting choices that they they make in the film is that, um, and I think in the short story, the 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 thing is actually telepathic and and, and mind reading, which is I think left out of this, uh, except I guess to the extent that it gains knowledge about the people that it, it, it uh, assimilates is that this is obviously right. A, a, an extremely intelligent organism. It, it starts building a spaceship out of, uh, out of spare helicopter parts. So this is, you know, this is not just some slavering beast. This is a, a very sophisticated intelligence. Um, it is capable of human speech. Obviously it, it speaks as a person when mimicking people. Um, but the thing as a thing never speaks. I mean, it basically just sort of roars, um, or makes these kind of terrifying noises. Um, it never, you know, cajoles or threatens or taunts or explains. It never, once it's revealed as a thing, speaks to uh, the party. Um, uh, it it uh, it only does that as a kind of. Uh, it only uses language as part of its disguise. Even though obviously it, it, it's capable of that, um, which you know kind of helps render those motives uh, more opaque, and you do sort of wonder: is it, it, it um, um, is it because in its natural state it, it 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 doesn't think in these linguistic terms that this is just a kind of um, a kind of coloration that it puts on uh, as a disguise? It's it's not um, close to kind of how its its own real natural processes work, um, or is it just that it sees us as uh, 
you know, such such a kind of lower form that um, that it doesn't even occur to it. The, the dialogue with us be, would be a, a a relevant strategy. And I I think Julian, even if um, it's for instance, if it did talk, that would be like an inherently different film, right? And I think the point of us like not knowing kind of what it is and like that element of like it adds an extra layer of like us not being able to control the thing um, or understand it or even like begin to start like studying it. And ultimately, when I was watching it most recently, I think this is the, maybe the third time I've seen it, but it's been quite some time since I watched it last. But to me, um, I felt like it, this is I don't know if it's relatively sad, but I felt like I could, re- I could relate to this type of isolation Um, Because like isolation within the last like two years, you know, we've been isolating and distancing ourselves and all that kind of stuff. And that's like a big part of this film is and I think I could almost relate to like how after being so isolated, you become paranoid. Right. So I could I think that made it a little bit more um, accessible to like today's audience like we were talking about. But I also think um that the setting and like the landscape and the visual elements really play in to that um to that idea of like isolation and leading and how that can lead to paranoia and i was wondering how you um how both of you thought that um the setting or the the landscape really enhances the film like what if it wasn't in antarctica would it be an inherently different film if it was you know dropped in new york at a lab yeah i mean if it were in if it were in New York in a lab, if it were, I mean, the stakes of the movie would weirdly, I mean, it'd be sort of the same, but it would, it would have to have an entirely different vibe. I feel like a movie that were set in a city would have to be, by almost by definition, more of an action movie for reasons I can't fully articulate. But just the there'd be the sense of immediacy you would feel. As a viewer, right, like, you know, uh, Wilford Brimley's character in, in the movie realizes that if this thing can get out, it'll infect the world in short order. And that would still be an important plot point, but it would be like it would be the over it would be the main point of the film. Right. So that's what the film would be about in terms of its narrative. Like, how do we stop this thing from getting out? Whereas an isolated Antarctic base, in addition to the setting, I think, allowing for a slower burn. Right, sort of like the the fact that the film isn't very long, but sort of moves at this sort of slow, steady pace. Even the camera movements are slow and deliberate. Um, uh, that is sort of like a visual, almost a visual representation, but sort of sort of it 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 flows from the setting um, itself. Um, the slowness and the stillness of the of Alaska, which is where it was um, shot. Why I think that I mean the setting it works for all sorts of reasons, but I think because Carpenter wanted to make a slower burn of a movie, I don't think you could have placed it anywhere else but somewhere remote, right? So you could imagine in this movie in a desert, you can imagine it sort of like in a remote forest, but I don't think it really would work in this. It'd have to be a different kind of movie if you put it in a populated area. Well, I mean, it would be because it would be spreading. Right, in a sense, so quickly. The fact that it's remote in, in, in a way kind of gives them the luxury of, um, you know, kind of trying to puzzle out who the thing is and who the thing isn't, and um, and maybe hoping that they can, uh, you know, they can they can they can get rid of the remaining things before uh, the time when the you know the rescue craft would come to take them away. Um, although you do wonder, you know, 
is there a point when, when you know, maybe earlier on when they should have said, look, we just need to kill everyone. Um, <laughs> all, we need to all take, we all, we all need to take one for the team here and, uh, 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 you know, uh, send the whole place up in flames, which ultimately is what happens. Can I just, I want to say, just, you know, because we've been talking about the, 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 the horrifying mood that there are just like a lot of great little jokes that I kind of enjoy <laughs> yeah. in this movie. Yeah. Um, and they're usually and they're and they're usually kind of visual jokes that you kind of have to think about a little bit to catch them because but they don't want to break the mood. But there's just wonderful little bits of sort of funny business. Um, I, I like that um, it's technically like an Alaskan husky or something, but um, that the first sort of vector for the thing is, you know, essentially something that looks like a wolf um, because the whole thing is about a, a wolf in sheep's clothing scenario. And of course, you wonder, well, what is you know what is so horrifying that it that it wears a wolf's clothing to make it, uh, to make it seem acceptable. Um, one of the very first scenes where we see the, the thing in this wolf dog form, uh, stalking the hallways, uh, Stevie Wonder's superstition is playing. And the lyric that you hear at the exact moment, the wolf starts stalking down the hall is good things in your past. Um, and it's not, you know, they don't punch it too hard, but it's, um, that's clearly intentional. Um, I also like that at one point they're showing the, um, the folks, the, the scientists watching, let's make a deal, um, on the, on the television there. You wonder how they get the, the broadcast, but I suppose it's probably, um, like videotapes or something, but, uh, but they're watching, let's say they're watching a clip of let's make a deal. That's all about, um, well, there are three doors and which of these doors has the prize and, and, you know, the contestant is sitting there fretting over which door is the right door to pick. Um, they all look the same, but one of them is has something different behind it. Um, so it's you know very small kind of background um, uh, jokes that I enjoy that 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 don't kind of interfere with the flow of the horror. But on a kind of second or third watch, you kind of go, "Oh, I see what you did there." Yeah, and especially uh, I, it is it's Palmer who's watching. Uh, let's make a deal, and it is it's on videotape, and he stops it and is like, "Oh, I know how this one ends," um, and and he switches it to another episode. And Palmer actually drops one of my favorite lines that I think is really funny when he is, he, I think he's rolling a joint while they're all sitting around trying to figure out what's going on, and he drops uh, chariots of the gods, a uh, reference to this you know famous pseudoscience uh, book that sort of. Is is one of the the foundational texts you could say about this sort of ancient astronauts theory that has given you know History Channel so much fodder to play with over the years, um, and I didn't I it, I laughed at it in the moment and I was like oh of course he that you know perfectly encapsulates the like kind of guy that he is I was like they they picked the perfect reference there. But then looking back, you know, talking about it right now, when I was watching it, I didn't realize that the thing came from space. I I knew that it had been in the ice for a long time, but it didn't click with me in that moment that Palmer was actually like kind of right there in that moment. So there's a a sort of funny irony um, that sort of also carries on when you think about how this was, you know, a big influence on a lot of other media, so much so that there's an entire x-files episode that basically uh, takes the the entire uh, conceit of it and even a bunch of plot points and simply puts it uh in an x-files episode where Mulder and Scully go to an Antarctic base like that uh 
uh, as well. I was also curious, I, did anybody else, I, I don't know if this was just me, but did anyone else immediately watch the thing and think of just playing Mafia or Werewolf or Among yeah. Us? <laughs> Among Us? Yeah. That's, Among I mean, Us. Which is that's all it is. Inspired by the thing. Yeah. yeah, it's just like a, a social deduction game. Uh, but it but it's interesting because like you wrote in the document that we were taking notes in before this, Julian, like there are times when you think, oh, the thing is, you know, assimilating into these people and, you know, sort of jumping from host to host in order to achieve some sort of goal, even if it's like a base level need of survival. But also there's sometimes when you think, do the people who are assimilated know that they are the thing, which kind of complicates the notion of a social deduction game of an informed minority as opposed to an uninformed majority and trying to parse out who is who. Yeah, I mean, there are variants of of, of werewolf um, depending on how you're playing, where your role can change during the night, maybe unbeknownst to you. So so you can become, in some of these variants, you can actually become a werewolf without knowing it, which makes the strategy much more complicated. Um, then you have to figure out whether, you know, maybe your card was switched or whether someone is pretending your card was switched so you're the werewolf and you don't know it. Um, but yeah, there's a couple points where, where I think it's implied that... Um, the, there is some uncertainty on the part of the people themselves about whether they are things. The um, uh, in the blood testing scene, when Windows' uh, blood gets tested, um, he sort of breathes this very visible sigh of relief, like oh, like he wasn't sure entirely what the result was going to be. Um, and you even, you know, I mean, earlier on, uh, Norris, um, who turns out to be a thing, so first he's like offered, they they, they don't really trust. Gary with the gun anymore because he had the key to the blood and he might have tampered with it. And um, so he kind of agrees to give up the, you know, his gun and, 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 and let someone else take charge. Uh, and so they offer it to Norris, who is at this point, presumably a thing. Um, and he says, Oh no, I don't think I'm up to it. And maybe that's like a strategic thing. Like, Oh, I don't know if I can keep the disguise up through that much scrutiny. Um, but later he's, you know, he's sort of feeling some kind of internal pains um, and grimacing uh, in moments when he's alone, and you kind of look at that and 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 think in retrospect, you know, was he being taken over, or had he been taken over, and but was not yet conscious of it, um, which it adds a kind of second layer of horror, right? The initial horror is I don't know who I can trust, which of these people is the thing, um, but then kind of the second one is I don't even know if I can trust myself. Have I become it? Would I would I know it? If I had become a thing, um, which in some sense, right, I think I think that dovetails with the right sort of extreme body horror um, that that we get in this film. I think body horror, right, at some level, is about the 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 disconnect between um, I don't know, kind of I guess the, the the pure self, right, the Cartesian mind that we might, even if we we you know intellectually don't think that's what we are, but we kind of perceive ourselves as these. You know, I am the abstract person, the the mind, and these kind of meat cages that that we're locked into, um, that sometimes you know betray us by, you know, developing tumors and otherwise um, breaking down in ways that 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 do not match our uh, our conscious will. Um, so the 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 kind of extreme body horror of your neck gets elongated, your head turns into this horrible spider thing, and you're 
torso opens up and becomes a, a kind of ravening jawed mouth um, is you know, it works very nicely with this idea of the horror of not being sure that this this physical uh, this physical suit you're wearing um, is 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 going to betray you is is acting in a in a way that um, comports with the desires of the person within. That's a, a really great observation, and I think it gets to why the prequel that came out in 2011, there's a thing prequel that was released, doesn't really quite work as well because I think the writers and filmmakers of of, of that movie. Thought they thought in terms of scares, sort of what's scary about this, and they thought in terms of what's scary is a big, you know, monster trying to get you. But um, that's not really what's frightening about this movie at all. And so to take that approach, um, it's sort of like missing the point in a big way. I think it's interesting, right? That sort of the, to the extent that the thing survives as a property, um, there is the aforementioned video game, there's a sequel, but there are tabletop games. Um, based on the thing, and and going back to the you know the earlier point about you know werewolf or mafia, or whatnot, um, I think this this absolutely does like if you were going to any way you would try to revive it, that the key has to be um, thinking in terms of you know this paranoia and this isolation in this sense this sense of unknowability like not only of the people around you but of of yourself as well. Um, like, I think they're they're always talking about remaking this movie, and I think there's probably I think there's a a remake currently in development. But if I were going to remake this movie, I might I might change the setting only in ways to sort of enhance that sense of isolation, right? Um, you know, in an undersea base, set this movie in space, right? Like so, uh, in the future, um, you'd have like a whole uh, a whole universe. It's like the thing goes to the desert. Right. <laughs> the thing goes under the sea. <laughs> I mean, I, I I think the I think the right format for this is a game. I mean, there's a reason mm-hmm. Among Us, which is you know was a runaway hit, um, yeah. maybe especially during the pandemic when we're all <laughs> with it. Um, in fact, you know, watching the movie, kind of having played Among Us, which is as for those who haven't played it, it's a, a game with a similar premise. Is you're on a uh, a space station or some other isolated environment, and um, some among you are essentially alien murderers who murderers who are trying to um, get get the others alone um, as they accomplish various tasks so they can kill them. Um, I remember there's a, a scene where right, McCready does a little bit of game theory and says, "Okay, look, I know some of you must still be human because if the thing had taken over everyone. I would, you know, I would just be dead." Um, and so right, they're they're actually trying to reason backwards. Very much the way you do in the game Among Us from, all right, who's been alone together? Uh, you know, if the thing had been alone with this person, then that person would also be assimilated. Um, and so can we kind of reason backwards so strategically to try and figure out um, who might or might not still be a thing? I think uh, I think a game is the right um, mode for this because, you know, more effective even than watching other people go through um, this kind of paranoid process is engaging in it yourself and kind of wondering if, hey, is the you know is the the person I'm I'm in this room with going to turn around and kill me horribly? Um, and Among Us does this with a kind of um, you know very cartoony kind of almost cute aesthetic. Um, but you know, imagine kind of a game like Among Us, but with high end graphics of the sort of John Carpenter style, um, where it's not just a cutesy 
you know, you're not a version of Pac-Man running but, around. You know? <laughs> yeah. Um, but the other, the other player literally turns into this kind of monster thing. I, mean, I think that would be absolutely horrifying. Um, and, you know, maybe the only reason they haven't done it is that um, I'm not sure how long I could stand to play it. <laughs> yeah. As fun as a VR game would be like that, I, uh, I, I would probably play one round and then be like, nope, that's, that's good enough. That was my $60. <laughs> well, the, the idea of, you know, sort of being aware of the people around you specifically made me, as, as that game suggests, uh, made me realize I did not know that uh, Mafia was originally developed by a, a professor uh, at Moscow State University um, and so sort of came to fruition and was developed through student groups, um, I think in the late portion of the Soviet Union. So there's sort of this like lingering tale of um, of this surveillance system. And so uh, it, watching this movie through a sort of, you know, panoptic lens, you know, using that sort of terminology um, was something that I didn't think about, but might lend itself a little bit more to uh, sort of developing uh, why some of these characters acted in the way they did. Although, I mean, in, the, right, in a sense, right, that would that would uh, res- resolve the tension to some extent. Uh, although maybe not. Uh, the, the the you know for the for the same reason uh, for the same reason you uh, you have to take away the cell phones in every part. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, so they can't they can't just call the SWAT team in. Um, it, it is dependent to some extent on sort of limits of surveillance technology within the base that uh, that uh, you are left with this question. Um, and although you, you, you could imagine, right, talking about how to update this, if you were to do a remake or a, uh, a sequel uh, today, um, you might imagine uh, you know, something based around the idea of, look, we know that, you know, aliens are among us. And so how do they adapt to the technology and how much um, how much kind of technology are we willing to embrace uh, to surveil our uh, our fellow organisms in, in an effort to, to suss out? Um, who 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 might and might not be a thing, um, you know. Maybe the the uh, I think you know like the right twist there is of course that that maybe there are no things and we've just done this to ourselves. The monster was us all, all along. along. <laughs> <laughs> so wait, we 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 have to talk about the ending. Yeah, right? I was just, literally just about to ask because yes, I saw yeah. doing you wrote yeah. down what if this is a happy ending? Uh, care to care to elaborate? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so I realize, right, the, the, the natural and probably correct read on this ending is that this is sort of a bleak, somewhat nihilistic, uh, 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 terrifyingly ambiguous ending as the as Childs and McCravey um, sort of sit there passing a, a bottle of scotch back and forth, wondering which of them is the thing. Um, but on the other hand, right, I mean, there's been sort of tension between these two the entire film. So even even up to the point where we know Childs and McCready are both, or at least, you know, let's assume the test is accurate and all that. But the fact the movie's presented us, I think we're supposed to understand that at least up to a certain point of the movie, both of these characters are human and they've kind of been at each other's throats anyway. Um, sort of almost irrespective of knowing that. Um, and you know, so this is the, the, the first one where they can actually sit down and, and, and share a drink, right? They're passing that bottle of, uh, of scotch back and forth. Um, and maybe or probably one of them is, in fact, uh, a uh, uh, at this point, an otherworldly, horrifying uh, 
homicidal alien terror. Um, and they're sort of saying, well, but maybe it's sort of futile to continue this this uh, this sort of pattern of distrust. Uh, and all right, maybe one of us is an alien. Maybe one of both of us is an alien. Um, but we can't really do anything about it. I guess we may as well share a drink. Um, and you, know, I mean, I can imagine. You know, I imagine the happy ending after this, where the alien sort of finally speaks up and says. You know, I was just trying to build a ship to get home. I didn't want to do all this, but um, that's that's probably not that's probably not how it ends. Um, although it does, I mean, it does leave open the the the, the question of like, the logic sketched earlier, right? Which is um, okay. Well, if one of them is the thing, and the other is sort of not particularly well armed, or you know, why why doesn't it just attack now? Or maybe maybe it's, it's waiting for the most opportune moment. Um, but anyway, it's, it's just an interesting kind of final scene where maybe out of kind of nihilistic resignation, but nevertheless, um, they have both to some extent kind of abandoned, um, abandoned the paranoia that's been driving the film. Right. They've, they've, they're, they're no longer paranoid. They're simply weary. Um, but I think they've both resigned themselves to whatever their fate might be. McCready clearly concluded that no one can leave alive. And so either he'll be the last one alive, at which point presumably he might like off himself um, or Childs will be the last one alive. But they both concluded that. I mean, the, the reason why they're waiting, right, is that all the fire. Child says, you know, the heat's still elevated from all of this. So we have we have some time. Um, and so we'll you know, once everything dies down, then they'll know which of them is the thing if, if either of them is. Um, uh but yeah, I, I mean, I can. <laughs> the optimistic ending to me, if you want to read it, is just that neither of them are the thing, and they both sort of just like you know they die of of, of exposure, and thus the thing doesn't escape. Um, so in the optimistic version, uh, they successfully keep the thing from spreading, but no one survives. Uh, but it's that it's that ambiguity, and sort of even that ambiguity gets back to this this the idea throughout the film that um, people are are unknowable, sometimes even to themselves. Yeah, I mean, Carpenter, I think Carpenter has an interview, and this is obviously extra, extra textual, so at some level, right, who cares? Um, but Carpenter has said that he believes one of them at the end is the thing, um, uh, but has refused to say which. Um, and, you know, I mean, obviously the setup of it is such that, hey, Child shows up again after being kind of mysteriously absent for a lot of the third act. And so, I mean, I think the viewer is supposed to think, well, we should be we should be wondering whether he's the thing. Um, but I don't know how, you know, sh- how sure are we McCready isn't a thing? Um, we haven't seen, right. Wait, there's a cut. We don't see what happens to him after the, 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 the Blair thing. Um, there's, there's shots earlier where it seems like we get a kind of visual of, of a thing's eye perspective or something kind of zooming on his, uh, his room. And we have some reason to think that people might be infected for a while um, before knowing it. So, Right, the, the film in that final scene kind of biases towards wondering if Childs is the thing, but we don't really have that much certainty that McCready isn't either. Right, right. There's, there's, um, it is, it is based on the text at least. It's basically unre- unresolvable, right? People have spent decades trying to figure out exactly which, if, which of them is is the thing, and, and there's no way to answer it. And I think it's, it's that ambiguity which makes this such a different film than the 
than the two films that follow Prince of Darkness and In the Mouth of Madness, which don't have that element, right? They're, they're, mu- they're much more conventional in their, um, in their structure and in, and in how they end. It is, it is, it is, a. um, I, I have to, I have to compare everything to Wagner because <laughs> I, I think it's written into my contract Gotta somewhere. Gotta play the hits. Um, but no, I mean, right. It, it is, it is, it is the kind of thing that, right. That tends to infuriate audiences, right? Like the last thing there's the Sopranos, the, the sort of deliberate ambiguity there that kind of made people a little crazy. Um, but I was thinking actually of, of Tristan and Isolde, um, uh, where, um, the, the, right. The kind of the, the iconic Tristan chord is sort of left unresolved all the way until the end, um, here, right. The chord is never resolved. Um, you've, you've got, a, uh, this, this simmering tension that's created all through, all through the, all through the film and Carpenter kind of refuses in the last instance, um, even though, right, presumably something is going to happen in the next half hour, um, right, refuses to give you, um, that resolution, which, of course, right, is is the, the secret to a movie that's going to stick in your head and claw at you, right? I mean, an ending where child throws spider legs and, and, and attacks or something and um, would would be, I guess, right, a cleaner resolution. You go, oh, okay, well, that, that was it. And But, you know, you, you wouldn't spend any time thinking about it later. Well, it's also, it's just like, um, well, Blade Runner came out the same day, but the ongoing discussion about Deckard being a replicant and everyone arguing whether or not that's that's the exact reading right (laughs) it's the (laughs) well that's it's interesting that you bring that up natalie because for a while and i believe carpenter has pretty much completely debunked this but uh, it was interesting because for a while there was a lot of assumptions and rumors that there was a lighting or glint in the eye of characters in the thing who had been assimilated which is like a huge part of the production of Blade Runner itself uh, and sort of a a controversy that's up in the air of whether you see that glimmer in Deckard's eyes at the very end and it just is so funny to me that these films came out the same day and that that sort (laughs) of discussion and rumor happened in both of them even if one of them was pretty much debunked. And I mean, the, the, right, the, the sort of the paradox of this kind of ambiguous ending is um, that it has to be that the right, the point is that there's no textual answer, um, but also it only works to the extent that you don't just immediately embrace that there's no textual answer, um, because right, the the right the film deliberately doesn't give you that answer, but the film does also want you to try and find that answer. Um, right, the point of the ambiguous ending is that you then. Um, you sort of sit with it and keep trying to digesting the film and working over it, um, looking for the textual answer that isn't there. There's this sort of puzzle box thing that fans have that is sort of like imposed onto a film. Because for me, the ending is essentially like it's it's re- it's bringing to a conclusion, but also recapitulating all the themes of the movie, all these the all these questions of of nobility and of paranoia and all these things come to a, a final point with just two people sitting face to face with each other, not knowing ultimately if the other is who they say they are um, and returning to this point, returning to the point that they departed, except now our hero or at least our protagonist McCready um, uh, has a sense of resignation about the entire situation uh, that he finds himself in. Like I'm not, you know, it, it makes sense that people would spend 
you know, the better part of three decades trying to uh, determine who who is whom. But I think you can. Um, like I, I remember watching the first time, and I didn't really care. Sort of like the the the, the thematic elements of that ending um, were satisfying enough to me. Right. I mean, I, I I think I think part of what makes the classic is these these sort of brain worm things that 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 get into your head and 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 make you puzzle over it. But um, certainly, I think I think that's right. That that. Um, Ultimately, the point of that ending is that it, is that it doesn't matter. And now for the time in the show where we get to share all of the other things that we've been enjoying with our time. This is Locked In. So, Julian, Jamel, uh, what else have you been uh, enjoying with your free time? Books, movies, television, games? What else? So let's see, novels, I uh, I just polished, uh, polished off uh, the last book of Charlie Strauss's Merchant Princes uh, series um, about, uh, I guess, commerce between between parallel worlds. Um, this Invisible Sun was the final one of, of I guess, nine. Um, and I'm reading actually another book about parallel worlds called uh, The Space Between Worlds. Um, so... For whatever reason, parallel universes is a, a theme in, in my fiction lately. Um, I've been running a, a couple of different Call of Cthulhu campaigns, uh, one in person and one, uh, one sort of over Zoom for some friends on the West Coast. Um, so that's been a lot of fun. Um, and uh, also I've been on a kind of a, a, a binge lately of, uh, of books by Bart Ehrman, uh, who is a New Testament scholar um, and writes a lot about the... Um, it's the, the process of uh, the, the, the compilation of the New Testament and the Gospels, um, how they were changed over time by scribes and later editors, um, and how you can try to sort of reverse engineer um, the sort of er form of the oral traditions that are encapsulated in the Gospels, um, just as, as out of historical interest as a, as a non-believer. Um, I, I find that, that sort of fascinating. Um, and, oh, and of course, I should mention my friend... Uh, Spencer Ackerman's uh, excellent, excellent book, uh, Reign of Terror, about the post-9-11 war on terror and and how it gave rise to uh, the Trump era. I am always reading, um, you know, various works of history. So I'm, I'm sort of in the middle of a big biography of uh, Julius Caesar, um, which I had read. I'd read SPQR uh, a few months ago and decided I would just sort of like read more uh, contemporary Roman history. But I think after I finished the Caesar biography and there's an Augustus biography by the same um, author, I'm going to actually read, you know, OG Roman historians um, like Livy and Tacitus and um, uh, Polybius and the, the, all, all, all the, the whole gang um, just for my own edification. Uh, and also because I spend a lot of time reading about uh, the early American Republic, you know, 1770 to 1820. And all those guys were, you know, obsessed with the uh, ancient Roman historians. So um, to that note, I'm reading, it's kind of a tome, so it's taken me a while. But it's a book called The Age of Federalism about the Federalist Party. It's, you know, beginnings, its growth, and its um, downfall uh, during the 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 age of Jefferson and Madison and such. So uh, that's what I'm reading. And then sort of to balance out this high-minded reading, I have been binging um, trash horror franchises. 
So oh, yes. Uh, Trash I, horror is our favorite. <laughs> <laughs> I recently watched all the Friday the 13th movies, which are, are, are uniformly bad almost. Um, the one that I like the most is I feel like the one that gets the most crap, but it's Jason X because there's at least a concept there. And um, <laughs> I think it's pretty well executed. I had watched the entire Nightmare on Elm Street franchise before then. And those movies I really enjoy. Even the very bad ones, I think, have a lot of merit to them. And the best ones, like Wes Craven's New Nightmare, is our genuine classics. Uh, I just finished, I guess I just finished Freddy vs. Jason a couple days ago, which I also like because it at least had a concept. And now I'm on the Halloween series. So I've seen John Carpenter's Halloween several times. Um, let me just watch Halloween 2, and I'm just going to go through by release order since I know Halloween it has like a weird chronology if you go by, you know, if you go by timeline order. For me, I'm also doing some spooky season stuff. So I'm listening to an audiobook right now called The Year of the Witching. Uh, it's a really, really good audiobook. Um, I don't know if I'd be listening to it not in Halloween ish time, but um, it's set in. Uh, early 1600s and it's about like um a a witch haven that's um in the colonies um it's i mean it's fiction so it's not obviously not real but um i've been enjoying it and then i i mean i hopped on the squid game train um i'm kind of sad that i did um (laughs) but i mean it was it was worth watching but I I felt like I I got just got peer pressured into it, um, and then I'm taking a break from my um, historical fiction reading because I'm running out of books, sadly. Um, uh, so I am turning to, um, what is the next book on my list? Oh, it's um, Untamed. That's the it's a um, New York Times bestseller. Uh, I think it's Glennon Doyle. I think read it, wrote it. Um, but it's it's been on that list for a while, so I'm just just now getting around to it. But uh, yeah, um, and then of course I'm going to be watching Dune in the next 24 to 48 hours. <laughs> uh, I also will be watching Dune uh, very very soon. I'm very very excited to watch that. Um, I my spooky season since we're dropping some of our our, our spooky views. Um, I have been watching and rewatching what we do in the shadows. Um, so much fun. I, I love it. I look forward to the new episodes every week and it's just, it's a great quick thing to watch that I could pick up at any time. So I love that. Um, Matt, Matt Barry might be the funniest person on television right now. He is my favorite. Um, and actually, I've been watching another thing that he's in that I think I've talked about on the show before. And I think it was an episode Julian was on, um, which is uh, I have been watching and reading a lot of The Moomins, which is a uh, a uh, Finnish um novel series that became a cartoon strip and then a sort of Japanese animated television show. And now there's like a CGI um, series that is produced, I think, by Sky in in the UK, um, etc. But it's a a family of trolls uh, that live in an idyllic sort of valley and live bohemian lives and go on adventures. But it's very Finnish. So it's, uh, you know, there's moments of great elation and wandering in nature and then sheer terror and chaos that for adults is fine, but for children would be 
super, super spooky. Um, and Matt Berry actually voices uh, the the father figure in that as, as Moomin Papa. Um, and at one point in the first, I think his first line in the whole series is he yells, bats, which is just hilarious considering his what we do in the shadows character. Um, so that's another thing I've been watching. Uh, also, Over the Garden Wall, which is in my classic October rotation, one of my favorite uh, sort of mini series to watch during the fall season it just captures that that feeling so well and the the music is incredible um i really really love over the garden wall um and i'm also trying to go back and sort of uh pick up some you know classic things or cult classic things that people have told me i would really enjoy that i never got around to so for instance uh, netflix is coming out with uh Sandman very, very soon. So I'm going back and I've never actually read Sandman. So I want to go through and sort of familiarize myself with the source material before I decide if I want to even uh, give the show a chance. Um, and, I, am so, uh, I, could, I could have to say it is such a I've read that probably a hundred times <laughs> and seeing just the trailer for that series, seeing this thing I've been you know reading and rereading for 20 years. um you know, actually kind of represented this high production value um, uh, version with, with, you know, real serious actors attached is just absolutely sends chills up my spine. So I, I, I envy you this experience. Thanks for listening. As always, the best way to keep in touch with us and get more Pop and Lock content is to follow us on Twitter. You can find us at the handle at Pop and Lock Pod. That's Pop, the letter N, lock with an e like the philosopher pod make sure to follow us on apple podcasts spotify or wherever you listen we look forward to unraveling your favorite show or movie next time pop and lock is produced by me landry Ayers, and is co-hosted by natalie dowzicki we're a project of libertarianism.org to learn more visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org